Well, we've reached uh, in our studies in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and verses 1 to 18. And after this, we will break off uh, for a while over the Christmas and New Year period. But uh, there's a wonderful uh, providence in the passage that we are studying as we approach uh, Christmas. And Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18 is the section I'd like to look at with you this morning. The whole letter can be looked upon uh, in various ways, but one very helpful way is to remember a statement early in the letter, in chapter 2 and verse 3, where the writer says to the Hebrew Christians, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And so much of this letter is telling us of the greatness, the so greatness of our salvation and how it all centers on Jesus Christ. And then as we think of that, uh, we see how much of it centers on Jesus Christ, particularly as our great high priest. In order to bring out the greatness of the high priestly ministry of Christ, there is a sustained comparison between the ministry of the Old Testament priests and Christ as our great New Testament priest. And in this section that we're looking at, which in fact touches on so many other parts of the letter, it seems to bring together and mull together so many other themes. Perhaps the one theme that stands out is the contrast between the offerings of the Aaronic priests, the Old Testament priests, and the offering brought by Christ as our great high priest during his earthly ministry. Earlier on in the letter in chapter 5, the writer establishes the importance of a high priest having an offering. In verse 1 of that chapter, Hebrews 5.1, he says this, For every high priest taken from among man is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. It it was the task, a very real part of the task of any high priest to offer up gifts and offerings. And we're looking especially now then at the offering that Christ brought in comparison with the offerings of the Old Testament priests. The first thing we can say is that Christ brought himself as an offering compared to the Old Testament priests who brought the blood of animals. In verse 4 it says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And we might add to that many other animals whose sacrifice was prescribed under the Old Testament law, particularly uh, lambs and uh, doves and so on. That is the offering that they brought, the offering of the blood of animals. Referred to again in verse 8, as sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin. There were various kinds of offerings for various occasions, for various spiritual situations, but they all had this in common, that they involved the offering up of animals. But we have in stark contrast to that what the New Testament offering, the New Covenant offering is, 
It is Christ himself, particularly brought out in verse 5 and following. Wherefore, when he, that is, when the Messiah, when Jesus cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice an offering thou wouldest not. In other words, you, you don't want me to bring an Old Testament blood offering, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that is, the sin offerings of the animals, that he may establish the second, that is, the offering of Christ himself. And how blessed (coughs) it is (coughs) the way the offering of Christ is described. It is not described now as blood, but as a body, because this reminds us that it is the whole human life of Christ, the human nature of Christ, in all his humanity that is being offered up. Yes, it is being killed. It is being sacrificed in that sense. There is blood, and the blood of the covenant has already been referred to uh, intensively in this letter. But this is something even greater. This is the voluntary self-offering of Jesus in our place as our substitute for our sins. And we sense the sacrifice in the sense of what it meant to Jesus, the sense of self-denial and sacrifice, when he says, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And this is a reference right back to the psalm we read in Psalm 40, in the uh, middle part of the psalm, verse seven and, and so on, verse six and so on, sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then I said, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. At this point, the psalmist, David, is inspired with a sense of, of complete consecration to his God. And the Holy Spirit is taking that up as also the words of the coming Christ. There is a slight difference between the quotation in the Psalms and the quotation used in Hebrews. This is simply because Hebrews is using the Greek version, the Septuagint version of the Psalm. And thereby, in this particular quotation from that Septuagint, it is giving a full inspiration Uh, to the text, as it were. And we see that the writer is really emphatic that he, that is God, is taking away the first kind of sacrifice in order that he may establish the second. He doesn't just say, well, now there's the second sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of the body, which I come to bring, the Messiah comes to bring. But he says he takes away the first, and the taking away of the first is necessary in order to establish the second. He he gave the first in the first instance under Moses, but now he takes it away. So it is not the second offering 
is not a continuation of the first offering. It's not just continuing on in a straight line, the blood of bulls and goats, of lambs and heifers and all that, and now it's the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Messiah. It's not like that. It's not just an add-on. The Lord is not leaving the two systems running concurrently, but this is the time of reformation, as we have already seen from Hebrews Chapter 9, this is the time of reformation. This is a complete change. He takes away the first in order that he may have and establish the second. You cannot have both. You cannot both offer up sin offerings and uh, sacrifices and burnt offerings in that way and also say that you are a believer in the finished work of Christ for your sins. You cannot have both. You cannot both uh, subscribe, as it were, to dead religion, to observances which in some way seek to make atonement for your sin. Whatever those offerings are, whether of fasts or giving or prayers or anything else that's religious, and at the same time say your confidence is in Jesus Christ as your saviour. The first is taken away in order to establish the second. And what a glorious second that is. What a glory this sheds on the incarnation of our Saviour. As we think of the Lord Jesus in his spirit entering into the womb of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body Hast thou prepared me? What a glory that gives us. What a sense of the wonder as well as the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So Christ's offering was himself. Secondly, it was efficacious or to use a simpler word, it was effective. Now the writer is here making much of the ineffective nature of the Old Testament offerings. They were prescribed by God, but they were prescribed in order that they might be ineffective. The ineffectiveness was not something that was God's fault. It's not something that God uh, didn't do well. He left within that system something which is ineffective, not efficacious. It's described in different ways in the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 8, he talks about finding fault with them. And that could well mean finding fault with the whole covenant. The fault is not in what its purpose was. The fault is not in the purity of the actual covenant. But the fault is with the sinful hearts of those to whom the covenant applies and it is deliberate it is intentional in order that there may be that awareness that this covenant is not perfect it doesn't take away sin so for example in verses 1 to 3 uh, it talks or verse 2 and 3 for then would they not have ceased to be offered because the because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, 
there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. The continual nature of the sacrifices is testimony to the fact that these Old Testament sacrifices do not actually take away sins. They're ordained by God, but they in and of themselves do not take away sins. Verse 4, in the nature of things, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And then in verse 6, this explains this particular a statement, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. It doesn't mean that God did not want them to be offered in this era, but in terms of taking away sin, they didn't do it. They weren't intended to do it. And then he speaks of sanctification and perfecting forever. Those sacrifices could not do it. Whereas Christ's sacrifice does do it. Verses 17 and 18. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, the taking away of sin, the sanctifying, the making holy, the making acceptable to God, the perfecting forever for heaven itself. It's all done not through those Old Testament sacrifices, but through the sacrifice of Christ. And therefore there is no more conscience of sins to those who are trusting in Christ for the removal of of their sins. You see, the choice is very stark. The choice is between religion, which doesn't take away sin, and that liberty of the children of God in knowing that their sins have been purged. There is no more conscience of their sins. And you can see how he's all the time steering his readers away from going back into what God has now finished with as a system. It's had its use. It's prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah. It's prepared the world with a sense of its sin and its need. But now it's finished. Christ's offering was himself. Christ's offering was effective. And thirdly, we see in this passage that Christ's offering was predicted. It was predicted because it was foreordained by God. It was predestinated, if you like, by God. And there are various ways in which this is expressed. For example, in that rather difficult verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. You see, he's talking about how it was beforehand. There was a shadow. There was a a sense of anticipation. In other words, there was a prediction of something better. And that something better, which it foreshadowed, is here described as good things to come and as the very image of the things, or as one version puts it, the true form of the things. 
On the one hand, you've got good things to come. They're still waited for. But on the other hand, you've got the very image of these these things, the very expression of these things. But the word shadow and good things to come immediately bring the thought of prediction, of something being anticipated and waited for. In other words, it's not just an accident. Jesus' coming was not some sort of haphazard thing as God scrambled around for a solution to the world's sin and came up at the last moment with the thought of sending his son. No, from all eternity, from the very beginning, God had ordained that his son would come, and his son came, came willingly. His self-offering is predicted in the Old Testament. That's why we have this quotation from Psalm 40. Wherefore, when he cometh, he saith, a body thou hast prepared me. I come to do thy will. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. It's predicted. And his high priestly ministry is predicted. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. There again, another psalm is being brought into play. It's Psalm 110. Psalm 110. That's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in all of the Bible, all of the New Testament, rather. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That is what is here being uh, referred to in verse 13 of Hebrews 10. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. This king priest is predicted in Hebrews, sorry, in Psalm 110. And this king priest, or this priestly king, after the order of Melchizedek, is predicted in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ's self-offering is predicted. Christ's great high priestly successful ministry as a king and a priest is predicted. And the old covenant itself is predicted In the Old Testament. That's what is being referred to in verses 15 to 18. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. Because he said this before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He's quoting from Jeremiah. Christ's self-offering was predicted. The gospel is not some clever new invention of the apostles, of Paul, of the early church evangelists. It's there in the mind of God from eternity past. Predicted. His offering was himself, it was effective, it was predicted, and then fourthly, it was a final offering. It was a once-for-all offering. This is one of the great themes that comes out in this passage. The repeated Old Testament sacrifices year by year, thinking of the the Day of Atonement there particularly, never make the comers there unto perfect, never purge their conscience in and of themselves, never take away their sins in and of themselves, and deliberately so, 
Deliberately, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And in contrast, we have the offering of Christ, which is once for all, verse 10, once for all. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You see, in the Old Testament tabernacle, and temple in the holy place, there were no seats. Well, there was the mercy seat, which I suppose you can think of as Christ himself sitting on once his offering has been made. But as far as the Aaronic priesthood was concerned, there were no, no seats. No Levitical, no Aaronic priest ever sat down during his ministry of offering up sacrifices. Because it was to be repeated. It was ongoing. But Christ has sat down. He sat down now at the right hand of almighty God. Sit at my right hand. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He sat down because he's not going to offer himself again. He sat down because the one offering was complete and perfect and was accepted by God. The resurrection itself attests to that. And you see what this means for our salvation, brothers and sisters. You see what it means for anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and comes to know him as their saviour. There is no need of any sacrifice apart from the sacrifice of Christ. That is sufficient. As God himself says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So don't revert to religion to add to the sacrifice that's already been made. Don't revert to old covenant religion. Don't revert to today's sacramental religions. Don't revert to all the forms of religions that are available They're all dead apart from the gospel. Don't revert to those to do what is utterly unnecessary because an offering for sin has already been accepted. An offering for our sins. And once your sins have been forgiven, God promises their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He will not remind you of them once you have confessed and forsaken them. He will not bring them up. He will not fly off the handle at some point with you and say, well, you remember what you did then? No, no. Because there's no need of any more offering for your sin. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Oh, dear friends, what a contrast there is between religion in all its forms, in all its misleading varieties, and the true religion. Religion is a word that means worship, by the way. It's a neutral word. But what, what a contrast between wrong religion and the true religion, the gospel. What a contrast with Christ's offering of himself. Let me 
again remind you, this is incredibly politically incorrect, but I'm going to do it. Let me again remind you what the 1662 prayer book says about the Mass, the so-called offering of the body and blood of Christ, each time there is a, a communion service. Article 31 says this, The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifices of the masses, in which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt, were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. That's what Cramner Thomas Cramner and the other reformers said about a type of religion that would keep on making an offering for sin, keep on in some way pretending, in some way declaring that Christ's body and blood was continually offered up as the communion was taken under the doctrine of transubstantiation. Listen to these words from a Reformation martyr who was burnt at the stake in 1555, a man called John Bradford, He wrote this letter in prison to Christians in Lancashire, actually. He says this, it's just an extract. Indeed, the chief thing which I am condemned for as a heretic is because I deny that in the sacrament of the altar, which is not Christ's supper but a plain perverting of it, when used as the papists now use it, there is a real, natural and corporeal presence of Christ's body and blood. He he denies that under the forms and accidents of bread and wine. That is, because I deny transubstantiation, which is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to antichrist religion, whereby the mass is maintained, Christ's supper is perverted, his sacrifice and cross imperfected, his priesthood destroyed, the ministry taken away, repentance repelled, and all true godliness abandoned. And we would just add one further thing to what John Bradford wrote uh, 500, nearly 500 years ago. We would say that every other form of religion which doesn't depend utterly and entirely upon Christ's sacrifice for sin as the only ground of our acceptance with God is also a darling of the devil and a relation of Antichrist's religion. You see both the danger some of these readers were in and the temptation that was all about them in all the forms of religion around them, especially to turn back to dead Judaism, You see the danger and yet you see the glory of what is here before us and what God gives to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear friends, apply this to yourself. In Christ and in Christ alone is there forgiveness and acceptance with God and an offering for our sin. Go nowhere else 
go to no other cause, no other plea in order to be accepted by God, including yourself, including your own moral efforts, your own religion. Yes, once in Christ, we express our gratitude in our love and obedience, but that does not merit salvation for us.